Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series on generosity. If you would like more information, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Uh, we're going to be in, in Matthew chapter 6 as we start this morning. At the age of 19, the famous church father, Augustine, read, sat down and he read one of Cicero's um, dialogues. And what Cicero wrote at the time, being a Roman politician, philosopher of the day, was he talked about this, this paradox that we often face in life. It's almost as if Cicero entered into the, the context of our world and our culture of today. He just looked out at life and at culture, and he said, it seems like everybody just has this great pursuit to be happy, to really enjoy life. On the other hand, it also seems like these people with this unendless, daunting pursuit of happiness are the most miserable people on the face of the earth. Why has it happened that everybody who sets out to pursue happiness and pleasure ends up being some of, the, some of the most miserable people that you find. And, and for Cicero, the answer was, was found in one word. His, his answer was contentment. What we really need to develop as a culture, as a society, as a people, is to be content. And actually, what you, fi- you find contentment in contemplative philosophy. Think more. Reason more. Think about knowledge. Do philosophy and then you'll be a much happier group of people. The book was electrifying for young Augustine. In fact, it was a game changer. It launched him on a quest to answer that question in a much different way. Why are people so unhappy and discontent at the same time? And his answer was much different, and his answer is something that if you're going to pursue philosophy and if you want to be known and trained with the greatest minds of the world today, you are also going to have to read Augustine. Augustine's answer was was something like this. We are unhappy and discontent because our loves are out of order, drastically out of order. Augustine taught that we are shaped the most not by what we believe, by what we think, or what we do. It's our loves that shape us the most. It's our passions. It's our desires. The reason we sin is because we love the wrong things too much. We desire the right things too little. We love important things more, but the most important things less. Therefore, all of our problems really can be stemmed from a lack of love, or perhaps disproportionate loves. There's nothing wrong with loving your job. If you love your job more than your family, you are in danger of losing both. There's nothing wrong with loving motorcycles, fast cars, and in Oklahoma, big trucks. But if you love your truck more than you love your spouse, you're in danger of losing both of them. Augustine had a thought, and a quote goes something like this. His book, Confessions, remains one of the the most read philosophies of sin, of love and desire in a secular and non-secular contexts. It says, my weight is my love. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. Just a few hundred years before Augustine, Jesus said the exact same thing. He said it just in a different way. His statement goes something like this. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And here's what that means. 
The things that you treasure the most are the things that you love the most. Whatever you treasure, whatever you value at its highest priority, that's really what you desire. This isn't a sermon this morning on, on how to give more and be okay with it. Uh, I'm not going to tempt you to, uh, to guilt you into giving more or shame you into giving more. I simply want to ask a question as we look at this text. What do you love the most? And have you put your loves in order? We just started a four-week sermon series on giving. I've called this uh, generosity, the gospel cure for possession obsession. Last week, what we looked at was, was really just kind of the basics of money in theology. We looked from Genesis to Revelation. We saw some Old Testament passages, some New Testament passages. I called it giving redemptively to show you both the perspective from the Old Testament and the New Testament as it applies to giving. It was all about giving redemptively. This week, uh, what I want to talk about is giving passionately, not necessarily the basics, but more of the belonging of giving. We're going to shift now to the heart, and we're going to look at one of Jesus' most famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to see three items related to giving. Number one, you're going to see the motivation. Number two, the aspiration. And finally, number three, the adoration behind giving and a motivation for giving. Are you pleasing God or are you pleasing man? As you pursue giving your aspirations, are you pursuing God or are you pursuing the world instead? And finally, in adoration, are you serving God or are you serving your wealth? At the beginning, to start this out, just like so many times in Scripture, you can't talk about a right approach to giving in a heart of giving until you stop and focus just on that, on the desires of the heart, on our loves, and think about a biblical theology even of the heart. Because this is really easy to understand when you step back and think about it. Sometimes people do the right things for all the wrong reasons, right? Sometimes we can be tempted to, to look the part on the outside, do the things that are right on the outside, but inside it comes from a bad place. These are the things that Jesus is going to address for us in his Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes we check the boxes, but we forget to check our hearts and ask, what are our deepest loves and motivations? Randy Alcorn has a great thought in his little book, Treasure Principle. It goes something like this. As surely as a compass needle follows north, your heart will follow your treasure. As surely as a compass needle follows north, your heart will follow its treasure. And so let's talk about that as we think about giving passionately this morning. Number one is the motivation. Please God, not man. Look down at Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read the first four verses here. Jesus speaking primarily to religious leaders in this context. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Verse 2, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Uh, now, verse 1, is, it's a summary, it's an introductory statement that's going to take us all the way through the first 18 verses in Matthew chapter 6. 
Jesus talks about three specific spiritual disciplines as he gets into the Sermon on the Mount here. Number one, verse two, he says, when you give to the needy. If you skip down in verse five, it talks about when you pray. It goes on to give the Lord's Prayer and talk a lot about uh, some principles of prayer. And then finally, in verse 16, it says, when you fast. It follows the very, very same formula throughout as he talks about these three disciplines. The three disciplines are giving, praying, and fasting. Now, the question is, why does Jesus highlight those disciplines instead of other disciplines? Uh, meditation, contemplation, uh, silence, solitude, different things like that. And we don't really know the answer to that, but... Jesus might be alluding to the mother of all Old Testament scriptures on what it means to love God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, it's called the, the Hebrew Shema. The Hebrew verb for hear is Shema, so we call this the Hebrew Shema. Hear, O oh hear, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, the Lord alone. Um, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5 says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your might. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart might be referring to praying. Loving the Lord your God with all your soul might refer to fasting. Loving the Lord with all your might might refer to giving. We don't know. Maybe the Shema is in the background here. We really don't know. But we can know that these three things, giving, fasting, and praying, were three elements, three spiritual disciplines that were prioritized both in the Old Testament and now for the Christian in the New Testament. Jesus introduces all of them with this one key verse, verse 1 in Matthew chapter 6. It's, it's, it's the summary introduction that flows for the rest of this passage. And he begins with a warning. He says, beware. And I just wanna, want you to look down at your text and I want you to read this carefully and slowly as you look down and read along with me. Verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Here's what that means in Greek. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be noticed by them. This is not a difficult verse for us to understand. And for some, image is everything. For some people, image really is everything. I want you to notice something. Every spiritual discipline talked about in the context here, Jesus tells us what not to do before he tells us what to do. And there's a reason for that. Because the disciplines meant for the heart might not be in the heart. And if the disciplines aren't in the heart, what's meant for the heart really doesn't matter because it's not landing. If the heart's not right on the inside, it doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. A person consumed with appearances and image has a desire to look spiritual without actually being spiritual. And that's a problem in the New Testament. That's a problem for Christians. It's a big problem for Jesus and the religious leaders. In a how things look system, you maintain a false image and you call it the abundant life. It's not right. One commentator says this, I think this is really good. He says, they, speaking of the religious leaders, were not giving, but they were buying. They wanted the praise of men and they paid for it. Really quick, how do you spot 
an image-oriented leader? How do you spot a leader who is consumed with how they look on the outside? Let me just give you a couple characteristics here. Image-oriented leaders operate from a false basis of authority. Number two, they lack integrity. Their spiritual image, number three, is projected. It's not a heart devoted. They require the recognition of people, and they label it respect. And they point to themselves as the primary source of knowledge, direction, and authority. Jesus was the hardest on the religious leaders because he couldn't stand this kind of stuff. You know who else can't stand it? The world around you, non-Christians, kids. They can sniff it out like a bloodhound. They can see it so well. People who look really good on the outside but are terrible on the inside, Jesus says over and over again, check your heart. Check your heart. Check your heart. Notice verse 2 says, when you give, not if you give. Why? It's expected as a Christian that you are giving the Lord's resources back to the ministry of the Lord. This is God's money. After last week's sermon, it was interesting, uh, some young guys came up to me and, and just said, listen, Jared, like, I'm so glad that you're doing the sermon on giving. Um, this is really hitting me, and, and I'm thinking about giving in a much different way. I'm in college. Like, I, don't, I don't have any money in the first place. What do you recommend for me? How am I supposed to, to give of my life? How am I supposed to give at all? Um, and it, Bruce, Bruce Lee has an interesting quote. Here's my answer for the young folks. He says, I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks. I fear the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. Train yourself for habits now that are going to be formed in the future. And if you think it's going to be harder in the future to develop a habit or easier in the future to develop a habit, then think again. Developing habits is hard no matter where you start, but it's probably the hardest when you start. And so as a young person, if you develop a habit now of giving, you will get in the pattern of it later in life, and it will become much more of a joy and a, and a respect and more so than a duty. There's no elevator to success. Everybody has to take the stairs, right? Good, good habits, good Christian spiritual disciplines and habits of, of grace and faith are formed early. They are formed often, and they are often formed when it hurts the hardest, College students here in the States probably have much more wealth than you really realize. Giving can be done negatively and positively. Verse 2 is the negative. Verse 3 is the positive. Verse 2, don't do it in front of other people to be noticed by them. Don't do it for the show of it. Verse 3, the positive. And verse 4, do it in secret. You do it without letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And everybody should recognize the hyperbole of that statement. It is patently impossible to do something with your left hand without your right hand knowing exactly what you are doing. The teaching is, is simple. It's, it's let your giving be done in secret, that your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I love the fact that TBC has transitioned from passing the plate between the rows to now, we just have boxes. You can come in the door, first thing in the back, you can come here, you can go online, and you can let your giving be done in, in a much more secretive way. 
We're not watching who puts in and who doesn't put in. We're allowing you the opportunity to do your giving in secret because the motivation is for our giving to please the Father, not man. Number one is the motivation. Please God, not man. Number two is the aspiration. Pursue God, not the world. I want you to skip down to verse 19. Read through verse 21. Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think I've, I've shared this story with you before, but it's worth repeating. Um, I grew up in a, in a very, very um, traditional American family. We were an upper middle class home in the Midwest in Wisconsin. My dad did really well for himself, very sacrificial, uh, very hard worker. He was an executive, a business executive and um, accounting guy, so he really took care of our family well financially. He built up a good nest egg and in a retirement, and, and we all kind of knew that we had many blessings that other people just, just don't experience. As kids in the family, always super appreciative for what my dad did for us. Um, Grandma and Grandpa paid our way through college. It was just, just a huge blessing for me and my family. Um, when he turned 50, he got a diagnosis of Parkinson's, and he spent his whole entire career building up his future financial prosperity. By the time he turned 69, he was dead after 19 years' struggle with Parkinson's. All that to say, you never know what's going to happen to you today, tomorrow. Later on in this sermon, Jesus is going to say, like, don't worry about tomorrow. Today is enough cares for itself. Don't worry about what exactly life is going to look like in the future. Worry about the right now, because right now is all you have. Right now is all that's been given to you. Um, there's, a, there's a verse in, at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, that talks about Demas. And it's just a real short, pithy verse at the end of Paul's life, right before he's beheaded uh, in Rome, presumably. He's, he's talking about all of his companions. He wants to see Timothy, if he can come back and see him again. He wants to see some of his companions. The one guy he doesn't want to see is this guy named Demas. And the only thing it says about him, it says that in love with this present world, he has deserted me. Demas' name occurs one other time in the Apostle Paul's writing at the end of Colossians. Paul writes to, to bring Luke to come visit him while he's in prisons, prison. Colossians is a prison epistle. He says, bring Demas along with him. Something changed from the end of Colossians to the end of 2 Timothy in Paul's life. And it wasn't with Paul. It was with Demas. And the recorded history that we have of this one person is that he was in love with the present world. In explaining Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 21, I love how one commentator put this, kind of reverses courses on Jesus and makes it stand out a little bit more. 
He says, it was no wonder that those vested with economic and political interests hated Jesus so much. So insidious was his attack upon earthly treasures that he became, according to Kierkegaard, a far more terrible robber than those who assault travelers along a highway. Jesus assaulted the whole human race at the point where the race is most sensitive. It's desire for security and superiority. Here's what happens in Matthew chapter 6. We're getting two things compared with one another. One is earthly and one is eternal. There's a treasure that's being compared. One treasure is lasting. The other treasure will ultimately be lost. One treasure is rewarding. The other treasure will ultimately be ruined. Treasures on the earth are at best, at best, treasures on the earth are insecure. They will not last. The moth was a well-known destroyer in the ancient world. In fact, the symbol of the moth became a symbol of destruction, not only to ancient civilizations and people groups, but also in Scripture. Read about it, hear about it in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 9, behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up, destroy them. Job 4, 19, how much more will those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth? Likewise, scholars suggest that burglary, thieves breaking in and stealing, Matthew chapter 6, burglary was much more common in the ancient world. Um, literally, the Greek verb for stealing is actually digging in when you look at the verb in its form for it. Remember, houses in Palestine were primarily made of mud brick. If somebody was going to break into your house, they could literally dig through the walls to get in. Often treasures, you, you hear about go in the backyard and bury your treasure under the dirt. Treasures in the ancient world were often dug out and placed in the ground. Uh, Egypt, anybody, King Tut's tomb, that kind of stuff. You had, you had treasures, storehouses, like nothing else that were buried in the ground. Thieves were, were always trying to get after it. Let me give a, a quick qualifier as you look at this verb, at verses, excuse me, in Matthew 6. Jesus does not say that possessions in and of themselves are bad. Possessions in and of themselves are not bad. He's only saying that there's a higher priority that demands our resources and our aspirations, demands that we pursue some things or one thing more than we pursue other things. Chuck Swindoll put it this way, there's nothing wrong with owning things. The thing gets wrong when it owns you. There's nothing wrong with owning things. Things go wrong when they own you. Verse 21 is the key. I'll just slow and read this one. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The heart is the Bible's term for the inner person, the, the best term, the more comp most comprehensive term for understanding the totality of who you are on the inside. The heart is your core. The heart is your processing system. It's your operating system. It's your magnetic north. The heart is your filter. Every desire, your thoughts go through the avenue of your heart. Your motivations ultimately go through the heart. Everyone at all times, Jesus is saying, is living for some kind of treasure. Have you ever heard this statement before? One man's trash is another man's treasure. Troy's got a lot of trash in the basement here. 
It's, there's mechanical pieces all around down there. I'm like, Troy, just throw it away. I don't, why are we hanging on to this? He's, man, this is treasure. You, I'm going to have to fix something at some point in time, and I'm going to need that piece. It's no longer made, and I want to have to go buy it or order it. The quote comes from this. Every, everybody is living for some, some kind of treasure. Everybody. For some people that might look different or, or be different, than for others. But there is never a time on this earth where you are not living for some kind of a treasure. Again, the question is, is are those treasures in order? Are those priorities longed for, desired, loved in their proper order? On this side of, of eternity, here's what happens to us. Things begin to rise to importance. Some things beyond their true importance. They set the agenda for our actions, our thoughts, and our desires. With all of us, things begin to rise to importance, and they begin to set the agenda for our lives. Step two is whatever we treasure the most controls our lives the most. All of this happens in your mind and in your heart before it happens in your behavior. What that means is change in behavior is great, but if the heart hasn't changed, all that change is just cosmetic. It's just a cover-up. In order to change what you do the most, you must change what you desire the most. There must be a change in the heart. There must be a change in the desire before there's a change in behavior. Again, otherwise it's just not going to stick. Step three is your functional treasures are either controlled by the kingdom of God or they're controlled by the kingdom of self. And this is the battle, the daily battle that we fight against as Christians. Every single day of your life is a battle for what you treasure the most. Either the kingdom of God is going to win that battle or the kingdom of self, selfishness, and the kingdom of this world is going to win that battle. The battle to become more generous is not one with emotional, psychological, or behavioral arguments. The battle to become more generous is one with logical arguments. It just doesn't make sense to store up for yourself treasures that will ultimately decay, be ruined, and lost. Jesus is appealing to logic. Whatever you treasure the most, that's where your heart is. That's it. If it's money, you're more controlled by money than you are about God. You are worshiping a false God in that scenario. Later in Matthew 6.33, he'll say this, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all the things that he mentions in that context will be added to your life. Seek ye first the kingdom. Seek first Christ. Put that love as the top priority. And every other priority should hopefully fall in place. Number one is the motivation. Please the Father, not man. Number two is the aspiration to pursue the Father, pursue God, not the world. Number three is adoration to serve God, not wealth. And I just want to look at one verse here. Look down at Matthew 6, verse 24. Matthew 6, 24. <clears throat> no one can serve two masters, Either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Martin Luther, a great Protestant reformer, captured these thoughts with an illustration. I think I probably mentioned this before too. It's just a really good thought. He says, man is like a horse. Does he leap into, does God, excuse me, does God leap into the saddle? Martin Luther says, the horse is obedient and accommodates itself to every movement of the rider, and it will go wherever the rider wills it to go. If man is like a horse and God could be in the saddle, what happens if God is not in the saddle? Luther says, does God throw down the reins? Then Satan leaps upon the back of the animal, which bends, goes, and submits to the spurs and the capricious of the new rider. The image is, is really clear, what he's saying. Either God is in the saddle of your life or Satan is in the saddle. There's no neutral territory. There's no other option. It's one or the other. It's black or it's white, and that's it. If God isn't controlling your life, Satan is. Whatever other manifestation of it, those are the only two options that we have. The image is, is extremely clear. Jesus is taking this from the world of servitude and from slavery. A slave with two masters can do justice to neither. You will love the one and hate the other, hate the one and love the other. Divided loyalties is not discipleship. You can't be divided on Christ. The words love and hate can be misleading in this context. Hate here does not refer to, to hatred as we understand hatred in our world, our language today. Instead, it's an emphatic way of, of talking about absolute commitments. It's talking about discipleship. To hate something is to love it less than what's loved the most. Jesus is asking for an uncompromising commitment to God's will and purposes for your life, whether that has to do with money or any other thing. Will God be the absolute uncompromising commitment or will something else take that place? Jesus is also sounding a lot like Bob Dylan. You, uh, you guys know uh, you're going to have to serve somebody? All you hippies are shaking your head out there. You might be a construction worker, working on a home, maybe living in a mansion, you may be living in a dome. You might own guns, you might even own tanks. Bob Dylan says, you might be somebody's landlord, you might even own banks, but you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And his theology is spot on. It's spot on. Here's the real simple way of putting this. If you're not serving God, you're serving something or someone else. And often that is manifested more with how we handle finances than anything else. Number one, as we close and apply this passage, God doesn't need our money. What he wants is our wholehearted lives, devotion, and trust. God doesn't need our money. What he wants is our wholehearted lives. He wants our devotion to him. And he wants us to trust him with little things in life, with big things in life. But to be nothing less than a wholehearted, devoted Christian 
who loves the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. It might seem counterintuitive for a, for a, a sermon series on giving to talk about this, right? When we give, it's not that God needs anything from us. It has much more to do with a life that is completely surrendered to Him, His desires, His wants, His will, and His ways. God already owns everything. Psalm 50 verse 10 says, "'A cattle on a thousand hills are mine. The beasts of the forests are mine. He owns everything because He created everything.'" Martin Luther again says this, I have held many things in my hands and I have lost them all, but whatever I've placed in God's hands, those things I still possess. Number two, there's a growing relationship between duty and delight. There's a growing relationship between duty and delight. I'll give you a couple illustrations. I love uh, preparing sermons every single week. I love opening my Greek text or my Hebrew text and looking at the original languages, translating them, putting these pieces together as best I can. The only way I could get there is by going through a lot of hard classes in seminary. And if you would have asked me several years ago when I was in Greek 101, 102, 103, 104, and Hebrew 101, 102, 103, 104, learning my paradigms, memorizing vocabulary, figuring out the syntax of the Greek and the Hebrew language. If you would have asked me if I really loved studying the Bible at that point in time, I would have said to you this. I'd say, you know what? Some days are better than others. Some days it's really, really hard for me to think about first person, second person, indicative, subjective, perfects, imperfects, aorist tenses. It was a duty. Learning that was really hard. Learning that was hard on my marriage, my relationships, time with my family. It was a duty. Over time now, as I've, if I've looked at those paradigms, if I, as I've studied the text, it's become much more of a delight for me. I think, I think, and anything in life, you can probably apply this at some level, right? Some things you do at the beginning, they really seem grudgingly, they, they seem like a duty to us, but they're the right thing to do. And over time, what happens is they develop into much more of a delight. Um, when I started out and I was playing golf, man, it was like, I, could, I just couldn't get back to square. I was over the top all the time, coming inside out, and I wanted to be outside in. Sam Rader, if you're here. And I would just, over and over again, I would spend just hours hitting these balls to get this thing just right. And I'm going to tell you, in college, it became a duty. I know you're looking at me like, oh, yeah, Jared, it's a duty to hit 250, 300 golf balls a day. I'm really sad for you. It was, it was hard. It was hard. And any athlete, college athletes, that's your job in college. It's your job to train and become the best athlete that you can be, right? It's a duty to do those things. Now, when I go out and I hit a shot like once every 70 strokes or something, it's such a delight to finally get there. Sometimes God wants us to take the initial steps of duty in order to form the future steps of delight. 
Sometimes we don't see the delight until we get through long periods of duty. That, ew, that was like, could have been taken a couple different ways there. Sorry about that. Double entendre. Um, first century culture was based on honor and shame. Today's culture is based on wealth and fame. So, in the first century, there was no virtue in being poor or rich. Today, it seems like it's a virtue for being rich instead of poor. Both things, poor and rich, are simply circumstances. No one ha none of them has one advantage over the other eternally when you think about it. I want you to think about just this one little question as we, as we finish up here. There's a growing relationship between duty and delight. And I'm encouraging you, if it seems like a duty now, do it, even if it's hard. In the future, you'll be much more delighted. Is my giving of myself, my time, and my resources done willfully, joyfully, and sacrificially, or is it done begrudgingly and regretfully? Is my giving done out of a sense of works-based duty, or is it my genuine response to the love of Christ? As you think about that question and as you ponder that, as you leave today, I want you to remember our great God and Savior who considered it a delight to give of himself for the sins of the world. I want you to remember what he surrendered in order to follow the will of the Father. I want you to know what he experienced as he did so sacrificially for us and for our salvation. And I want you to have that same blessing and delight when you give to the Lord of everything that you have. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, it's, it's hard for me to come up and, and give these um, sermons and teach on giving, Lord, and um, I just pray that you're working in my heart and all of our hearts to know that everything we have is from you, to you, and through you. You are the source of all things. You are a good God. You've given us so many blessings that we can enjoy and experience in life. You've given us financial well-being. You've placed us in, in a country, in a free country in this world that is financially prosperous. You've given us the ability to, to love one another, to have relationships, to do life together, have a community of faith framed around the sacrifice of your son Jesus on the cross for us. And I pray that that sacrifice, what he has done for us, will be exemplified, not only in our giving, but in, our, in every aspect of our lives, that we will think about Christ before we think of ourselves. We will think about other people before we think of ourselves, that we will learn to delight in you even through the painful times of duty and responsibility. God, help us. Give us a maturity and a wisdom beyond our years. Give us an eternal perspective, not a temporary one. Help Christ to become all the clearer 
in our physical lives, our spiritual lives, our financial lives. I ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen.